October 1995, I was in college, and I came to faith in Jesus Christ. Third year in college, I say three years, because it took me five, so I didn't really know if I was a sophomore or a junior yet, but I was working it out, came to faith in Christ. It wasn't as though I didn't have a background. I grew up in this sweet, loving Baptist church in a small town, and I grew up singing uh, hymns out of the hymnal. My favorite hymn was page 99 in the Baptist hymnal, the old rugged cross. Maybe you remember that old hymn if you were Baptist. We also sang like 15 stanzas of just as I am If somebody at the end of the service when we had an altar call to make sure somebody might need to come to know Jesus or be transferred of their membership or come down and confess sin. So we sang those songs. I remember listening to sermons, good sermons about different topics. I didn't know what topic was coming next, but faithful to God's word, applicable to my life. I remember our church, a small little town, serving the people of our community and loving each other well, primarily with food. Good times. Faithful church. People love Jesus. I didn't come to faith until I was in college, though, and the people that I was around took me to this church, and the first Sunday that I came, I heard songs that I had never heard before. I heard a mighty fortress is our God next to the doxology. And then I listened to a sermon that was preached through a text of Scripture, and it seemed like every Sunday I went, we just kept walking through a passage, the next passage of Scripture, and God was always the hero and the cross was always central. Two incredible experiences, but a very different paradigm in each of those churches. And the second church in college, Denton Bible Church I was in, they cared about the Bible a lot. We studied the Bible in the morning, in the afternoon. We met at the coffee shop and studied the Word. And I was trying to put these two for a couple of years. I was trying to put these two paradigms together. And what it ended up coming down to is a study, a study on divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And I think I thought at the time that I was the only one that had ever had this tension in my head over God's sovereignty over all things. That is, that he's in control of all things. He's moving all things to the counsel of his will. He's the king. He's the boss. And all things work to the counsel of his will. And he does as he pleases. I was trying to reconcile divine sovereignty with human responsibility. I thought I had all the answers. I was trying to seek answers like nobody else in the history of church had ever done. You ever been there? And I remember a brother who had been mentoring me. He said, listen, let's continue to study this because this was kind of ripping me apart, going, how can I understand these words like predestination, like election, like calling? And it seems like God is doing this, but the church that I grew up in, we all found Jesus. Like we sang that song, I found Jesus. How did I reconcile these things? Deep struggle that I had in reconciling those. And a brother came to me and he said, hey, listen, let's study Romans. And we got to chapter 9 and he said, he said, listen, let's stop here. I want to tell you something. Here's what happens in Romans 9 through 11. This is the text we're coming into today, Romans 9. He said, what you're going to see in Romans 9 is God's sovereignty. And then you're going to come to chapter 10, and you're going to see man's responsibility. Because man has a responsibility. And then chapter 11, Paul's going to put it all together, and he's going to come to this conclusion. And you need to start at the end 
rather than the beginning. So I want to start this morning at the end of chapter 11 as we look and begin to look into God's sovereignty in chapter 9. I want to start with the end in mind. Romans 11, Paul comes to this conclusion. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who Jesus, who hung out with Jesus, who's a great theologian, knows more than you and I, his conclusion to this divine mystery of God's sovereignty and human responsibility at the end of the day is this. Romans 11, verse 33. Here's his conclusion. Here's where he gets to, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how inscrutable and unsearchable are his judgments and his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And there was some great teaching for me as a college student who wanted to learn the depths of God's wisdom, there was some wisdom that I drew from where Paul got at the end of the day. At the end of the day, the sovereignty of God, the the sovereignty of God did not cause Paul to stumble. It caused him to worship. It was a comfort. It was an encouragement to him. And what we often do when we come to the sovereignty of God is that we analyze it rather than adore it. What we do when we come to the sovereignty of God and human responsibility, what we often also do is we ponder it, but we don't give him praise, that he's beyond us, that he's infinite. What we often do is we scrutinize and we pick positions based on our logic rather than submitting to who all of who God is. So we come to Romans 9 this morning with all that backdrop, and we're going to look at God's sovereignty over all things, how ultimately God is in control of all things. He is a ruler over all things, and he does what he pleases. And there's going to be questions if you've never studied this. Even if you have, there's questions here that we don't have full answers to, and yet Like the Apostle Paul, we can come to a place without all the answers and acknowledge both that God is sovereign, we have responsibility to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. So we come to Romans 9, but here's the deal with the Bible, and and you know this, but the Bible isn't like old school Dewey Decimal System where you just pick a topic and you go to the library and you find what you want to think about and study. It doesn't work that way. There's a context to the Bible, and there's a reason why Paul comes to Romans 9, and he talks about God's sovereignty, and then he talks about human responsibility. There's always a reason he does this. I want you to think about what we've studied in the book of Romans so far. We've seen that we are completely lost, that there are none righteous, no, not one, that there's nothing that we bring to God's table that we might be made right with him. But God counts us right with him on the basis, Romans 3, of Christ and what he's done for us on a cross. That's how we know God, through faith. And then we find out these glorious truths about what it means to be a Christian from chapter 6 through chapter 8, that we're not only made right with him positionally, but we have this relationship with Christ, that we're, Romans 6, we're united with him, 
that we belong to him. We are in Christ. These are relational terms. And we live in this crazy world and we struggle with our sin and yet God has left a helper. He's left the the Holy Spirit to help us, to fuel our Christian life. And we came last week to the glorious end of Romans 8 and we saw even a more glorious truth that we can't get booted out of the family, that we're always his if we know him. There's no condemnation. There's no separation from God. And he's going to bring us all the way home. But here's the problem of the day if you're living in Rome in that time. This is written to the Romans. The church in Rome where there were some Jews and there were some Gentiles. Do you remember back in the beginning of Romans, Paul makes this declaration. He says this in 116, chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For the gospel is the power of God to all who believe, first to who? The Jew, and then to the Greek. Here's the problem in present day Rome. The problem is not many Jews had come to know Jesus, their Messiah, their Savior. That's a perceptual problem. Listen, if you're a salesman and you have a product and you're going out and you're trying to sell it and not many people are buying it, you're going to go look at that product. And so the question in the back of people's minds of this incredible gospel that's supposed to have power and it's supposed to be transforming Jews first and then Greeks, here's the problem. There are not many Jews who have come to know Jesus. So here's the question of Romans 9 through 11. Has has God's word failed? Because people aren't coming to know Jesus, their Messiah, especially the Jews. The percentage is very small. So is God's word failed? This is an incredible gospel, but is God's word failing? And then therefore, the the follow-up question is, can I really count on God? Is he trustworthy? So this is the question that Paul asked, and where does he go? He goes to God's sovereignty first. I want you to think about that. Have God's plans failed in your life when you can't see it? When a new COVID variant is out and you're scared and you're fear, fearful, is God still on his throne? Is, are his plans going to be thwarted? When you look out on the news and the world looks like Gotham City, with looting and rioting and the world's gone mad? Is God still on his throne when you can't see it? When your health fails, when your sports team doesn't win yesterday? When the person you went to Thanksgiving dinner with for the 30th time, who grew up in the same family that you did, and that person was taught the truths of God's word, and they still don't believe? Has God's word failed? Or he's he's still on his throne? So we're going to look at God's sovereignty. Romans 9, four glorious truths about God's sovereignty and how Paul will defend and demonstrate that God's plans never fail because he is sovereign, that he is ruling and reigning still. So let's read it. Romans 9, 1 through 13. I'll start there and we'll just kind of work our way through. 1 through 13. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. 
that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen. According to the flesh, they are Israelites, and to them belong adoption and glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is, in, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. And here's the framework. Here's the question. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. You should underline that. For not all who are descendant from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah has conceived children by the one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it was written, Jacob I love. And Esau, I hated. Here's your first truth. The first truth this morning in 1 through 13 is this. God sovereignly chooses a people for himself. He's always sovereignly chose a people for himself. But how does he do it is the question. Remember Paul's commission. He's a Jew. His commission is to go to the Gentiles. And so many Jews might have looked at Paul and said, you don't really care for the Jew. But remember, Jesus sent him out to preach the gospel to the kings and the Gentile world. And so he's clarifying here that he loves his kingsmen. He loves Israel. And he's so burdened for the lost in Israel who have all this godly, effectively godly heritage, who've been raised in the faith, and yet they've rejected their Messiah. Do you see his burden? Do you see his heart for his own people that they might come to know Jesus? Can I ask you this morning, who are you burdened for? Are you burdened still for the person who knows the truth of God and yet has rejected it? Paul is burdened, and he demonstrates that in the first five verses here, but then he comes to the key question, effectively, has God's word failed? Because not many Jews have come to know their Messiah And his answer is, as you would know, like it always is in the book of Romans, no. God's word has not failed. And then he goes to God's sovereignty and he gives a couple of examples. Do you see them there? He gives the example of Isaac and Ishmael. Do you remember Abraham and Sarah? They couldn't conceive. God said that they would conceive. What did they do? They took matters into their own hands and they decided to have a son through Abraham's and, I, and, and Sarah's um, servant, Hagar. And they had Ishmael, so they took matters into their own hands. And they thought, okay, this is going to be the promised child. This, this didn't work out for us, but this is how God's going to do this. He's going to do it through Ishmael. And God said, no, you're going to have a son. You two are going to have a son. Even though you can't conceive and you're in old age, you're going to have a son, a son of the promise. 
And it's the second son. It's not the first. You know, in the Old Testament days, it's the first child. It's the first son who gets all the things, all the goods. And yet God picked Isaac. And you might say this. Well, of course God picked Isaac because he wasn't the child of promise. They um, sinned against God by having a child with another woman. And so, of course, it wasn't through Ishmael. It was through Isaac. But then he uses another example down the family line. Down the family line, what do you see? Jacob and Esau, but look at that example. This gets a little different. Same mother, not different mothers. Same father. They're twins. They're conceived. And look at it. Before they had done any good or bad, God chose Jacob over Esau. Now, let me ask you a question. If you know the story of Jacob and Esau, if you know their lives, and they're in, let's just say they were in school, and you were one of their, you were their teachers, and they were both in the same class, what kind of deportment grade does Jacob get, or Esau get? Who gets a better grade as you look at the morality of both of those guys' lives? Esau is a better dude, if you're looking at it, just on a, on a, from a moral scale, Jacob's name literally means deceiver or heel grabber. He comes out grabbing his brother's heel, and he never really lets go until later on. Then he's just grabbing God, right? He takes his birthright. He's a deceiver most of his life. He hides, even when he sees Esau later in life, he's hiding behind his wife and his children. There's nothing in Jacob that you would say, He's better. He's the best kid. Of course it goes to him. You'd probably pick Esau. His conduct grade in class was better. But does God choose Esau? He doesn't. He chooses Jacob. Not because of something they've done. So here's the point. God sovereignly chooses a people for himself, but he doesn't do it based on human achievement. See also Ishmael. And Isaac. And he also doesn't do it based on status, ethnic status, family status. He doesn't do it based on works, externals, looking down the corridors of time and saying, this one's going to be better than this one. He does it because he sovereignly chooses a people for himself, for his own purposes. How does that rub you? That's a challenging passage. That's a mysterious passage. Spurgeon said this about the doctrine of election. I believe in the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I would never have have chosen him. That's theologically true. I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterward. Thank you. That was good. But maybe you're saying, well, does that mean that we're robots? I mean, God just sovereignly chooses, so we're robots. We're just God's puppets. That's not what the Bible says. We're going to get to that next week in chapter 10. And many other places, there is personal responsibility that we have before God that he holds us accountable for our actions. The Bible teaches both. And Spurgeon also says this, when asked how he would reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility, how would you reconcile this, Charles? And Charles says, I wouldn't try. Because you never need to reconcile friends. You see, the Bible teaches both of those things. And while 
you and I have a hard time working all those details out. See, these two things are not enemies. And they're not even neighbors that don't like to talk. They're friends. They're not cold to one another. They're warm to one another. They're not in this cold war, even though the church looks like it's in this cold war about these things. They work together. This is what the scripture teaches. So has God's word failed to Israel? You see this? You see what Paul's doing here? Has God's word failed to Israel? No. He's always been choosing a people for himself. See also Isaac. See also Jacob. See also Israel. See also you and me. But the question that you have and I have is, well, how can God be just? That's, Paul, that's where Paul's going next. He's a good teacher. You and I ask that question maybe a little bit differently. How is that fair? That's the question I ask. That's the question. How is it fair that God just chooses? Glad you asked. Verse 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Your next truth is this, that comes out of the question, how can God be just? Meaning, I mean, the idea of God's justice is this, that he always does the right thing. How does God always do the right thing? By sovereignly choosing. Your next thought is this, God's sovereign ways are always just, and they're always merciful. See, God isn't unjust. It's interesting because if you're reading this as a Jew, you've got to come to the reality of something that while God judges Pharaoh for his actions, remember the Bible says Pharaoh hardened his heart multiple times and then in Exodus it also says God hardened his heart. Which one is it? Yes, both. But if you're a Jew and you're reading this and you're reading these words and you're thinking, wait a second, Pharaoh's a bad dude. He did all these things to our people, but God was using him? How can God use someone like Pharaoh? God can use anyone he wants to accomplish his purposes. See also the cross. See, here's the thing. I think when you get down to this fairness question, here's what happens. I don't think you ever get your mind around God choosing and electing and predestining. I don't think you ever get your mind around that. If you're coming from a place where you think there's innocence, right? Where you think there's innocence. If your posture is, I'm innocent, so why does God choose one or the other? Because here's the thing, nobody's innocent. As a matter of fact, the book of Romans that we've been studying has made it really clear that nobody's innocent. No, not one. Romans 3, 9. No one does good. No, not one. And so think about it this way. Spiritually speaking, if we all are in prison because we are guilty, 
We're all on death row spiritually because we are guilty. We're guilty because we've inherited sin and the fact that we commit sins. We're guilty before God. And so imagine that we're all in this prison and we're all guilty and we're all on death row. And God, who is just, chooses in his mercy to pull one out. Is he not fair? See, here's the thing. The reality is this. Nobody is treated unfairly by God. You either receive justice that you deserve because of your sin, because God's just, or you receive mercy, which you also don't deserve. So God is just either way. He's a just God either way whether you receive justice that you deserve or mercy that you don't deserve. But we're not innocent. John Stott said it this way, the wonder is not that some are saved and others are not, but that anyone is saved at all. For we deserve nothing from God's hand but judgment, all of us. For if we receive what we deserve, or if we receive what we do not deserve, God is just. If anyone is lost, the blame is theirs. If anyone is saved, the credit is God's. You need to hear that again. If anyone is lost, the blame is theirs. If anyone is saved, the credit is God's. This presents a mystery. He's honest. It's a mystery, which our present knowledge can't fully solve, but is the consistent and ongoing clear teaching of the Scriptures. Has God's Word failed? No way. See, our just God is sovereignly working to mercifully save a people. But the next question is really obvious, isn't it? Why some and not others? That's the question you have in this. That's the question I have in this. And so far, what has Paul done? He's been on the defensive. He's been the defense lawyer. He's explained. And now he's going to stop explaining. He's going to stop explaining. Look at it in verses 19 through 23. You will say to me then, here's the question, the rhetorical question, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? For who are you, O man, to answer back to God? See, he's on the offensive now. Well, what is molded say to the molder, the potter, the clay? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel of honor, honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, And to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And this is where it gets a little hard, but here's the truth. The truth is this. God is sovereignly free. He's the one that's free. He's free to demonstrate his mercy and justice as he pleases. Because he is God. And he doesn't, if you notice, he doesn't really answer his question here. He doesn't answer it. Do you remember when Job and all the suffering that Job went through and he went to God and he's like, what's up with this? What does God say to him? Where were you? Where were you when I made the heavens? And he goes through this long list, and you know how Job responds after God effectively rebukes him and corrects him? 
He closes his mouth. And he reflects on the goodness of God for all that's happened. You see the same thing with the prophet Habakkuk, which we studied sometime back during COVID, whenever that was. When he's got questions about how God is just, he can allow some foreign sinful nation to come bring judgment that Israel needed on Israel. And he has questions first about why God isn't doing something about his own nation. And then God tells him he's going to bring these Babylonians to destroy them or Assyrians to destroy them. And he's like, you can't do that, God. I mean, we're more righteous than they are. How can you use these people? And Habakkuk stands on his at his podium, effectively, after he tells God that God can't do it, and he awaits his answer. There's a pride there, a massive pride, and God spends a chapter saying, who are you? And you know what Habakkuk's response is? It's not more questions. It's worship. It's praise. It's a prayer of praise. Think also about Paul, this great theologian who comes to the end of this dynamic of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, and he just gives God's praise. See, when we land and we look at these things and we go, well, if this is true, this can't be true. That's not, that's not how God works. It's not true with the Trinity. It's not true with Jesus, the Son of God who became a man. How do you understand God in flesh? How do you understand the Bible that has divine authorship but also human authorship? How does that work together? How do you understand divine sovereignty and human responsibility? The Bible says they go together. There's surely a paradox for our finite minds. But the end result is worship. What's the end result for you when you consider these hard truths? Is it worship or is it scrutiny? It's a good question as we consider this. Well, Last question is this, why, not why, some rather than others, but God is free to demonstrate his mercy and justice as he pleases. The potter is free. The clay is not free. We are not free. And the the best example that you have in Scripture and maybe the most important example that you have in Scripture of God's freedom to show both justice and mercy is found at the cross, is it not? Aren't you glad that God is free, he's sovereignly free to show you and me his mercy at the cross and put the judgment on his son? If you want to get amped up about free will and freedom, you ought to get amped up about the freedom that God has to justly and mercifully Put his son on a cross that you might have life and forgiveness. See, God is free. But the last question is this. Okay, so if God's word hasn't failed, but there's only a small percentage of Jews so far that I see that have come to know their their Messiah, who makes up the family of God? Who is it? And that's what he deals with in verses 24 through 29. Verse 24, even us to whom he's called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea. This is where the outsiders become insiders. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. 
And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very same place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. And then he goes to Isaiah. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. So there's always a remnant of Israel. Though the number of sons of Israel be the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully without delay. As Isaiah, Isaiah predicted, for if the Lord of hosts has not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Here's your thought. God's people are saved by his sovereign grace, not race. We're saved by his grace, not by the race or the color of our skin. God is saving a people from every tribe, from every tongue, from every language. It was his intention from the beginning. Yes, were there promises and covenants to the nation Israel? Yes, why? That they might be a witness to the world, that when the world looked at Israel as set apart, that they would see the glory of God. That was the purpose. Guess what? As the church, you have a similar purpose. But when God looks at you, this is why he's left you here. When he looks at you and me, when people look at you and me, that they might see Christ. This is one of the reasons he's called you to himself, that we might be a light just like Israel. But both these examples, for the example of Hosea that he gives, the outsiders become insiders. The people that are far off become near to God. And then for the people of Israel, that there would always be a remnant. One person said it this way, God's glory is maximized when God's mercy is most utilized. There's room at the table for every tribe, tongue, and language. This has always been God's intention. So is there room at your table for other people that might not look like you? Is there room at your table? C3. There's kind of a sense here where there's old and new. In the, in the church in Rome, do you remember what happened there? The Jews got kicked out. There's this church, there's churches. The Jews, these Christian Jews got kicked out. And then they came back. And they saw all these new Gentiles that had formed the church. And the church had grown. They're the ones that had been there. And they're the ones that had been there the longest. C3. I look around in the last couple of years, and there's a lot of people who have been here. You're the remnant. You've been here for a really long time. You've been setting up tables. You've been serving. You've been doing all of those things. And then there's also a, a new group of people in the last couple of years that have come in that make up almost half of this church. And so are we leaving room at the table for one another? Are we bringing people into our table? God's word hasn't failed. He's sovereign. He chooses. He's just and he's merciful. He's free to do as he pleases. He calls a people from every tribe, tongue to himself, into his family to maximize his glory, to maximize his mercy. And I think there's a number of takeaways, so I'm going to do this a little different today. There's a ton of takeaways here. We've gone through 29 verses, or I've tried to go through 29 verses in like 35 minutes. There's a lot of takeaways here. The first one is, are you burdened? Are you burdened for lost people around you that don't know Jesus? And more specifically, are you burdened for people who know the truth and don't believe? 
Are you willing to bring them to the table? Are you willing to pray for them? Are you willing to open your mouth and share with them the good news of the gospel? And I think another truth, as you look at God's word and God's promises, listen, no matter what you see out there, no matter what happens in your life, God's word will never fail. It will not fail. The promises that he has promised you will not fail. Now, we have to be careful. We often want things that we want to be promises. And there's a lot of things that God doesn't promise. He doesn't promise health, wealth, and a lot of things. So we need to be clear about God's promises. But he is with you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're not going to be kicked out of the family. He loves you. He's for you. God's word will never fail, no matter what you see. It's true. And then third, I think we need to embrace the mystery of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. God's control, God's in control, but you're accountable. I'm accountable. God's sovereign, but you must believe. Work that out. (laughs) The Bible works that out. The Bible doesn't see that. certainly a paradox, but the Bible doesn't see that. Paul doesn't see that here as a problem, but what we tend to do is we pick a side. We, we, we pick a side, one side or the other. But when you put Romans 9 through 11 together, the Bible puts all this together. And it causes worship. It causes adoration. It causes us to go, I don't understand all of this, but I'm going to praise God anyway. God is sovereign. We are responsible. We've got to embrace the mystery of that. And I would also say this, allow, we need to allow God to increase our faith through his sovereignty. If you struggle with God's sovereignty and you just kind of put it on a shelf and you redefine it, you're likely going to have problems with the things that happen in your life, more so than if you can rest in his sovereign plans and purposes. So when the world goes nuts and politics goes nuts and it's Gotham City out there, you're going to be more fearful if you don't believe God is fully in control of all things. So you need to allow God's sovereignty to increase your faith. It makes God incredibly big, big in your temporal circumstances that are trials and troublesome. We don't have to freak out. We don't have to freak out when another variant comes or the economy goes bad or the political landscape looks bleak or there is pain and suffering in our life. There's surely hurt is hurt. And pain is pain, and we walk through that, but we walk through that with a big God who is sovereign over all things, and he's got you. He knows your situation. Imagine living in a world where you didn't believe that, where you just thought, well, whatever we choose is what's, what we choose, and, and the results fall because of our choices completely. That would be a scarier world to live in than the one you live in right now. God is sovereign over all things. And so some of you... You need to press in. Some of you who are maybe a bit averse to the idea of studying something hard and making sense of it, you need to press in. But I also want to say something to you theology geeks like myself. See, God is not just meant to be analyzed. He's meant to be adored. He's not just meant to be pondered, but proclaimed. Notice. The Apostle Paul, the great theologian Apostle Paul, 
his burden for the loss, but his affirmation for the sovereignty of God in this chapter. He doesn't just need to be pondered. He needs to be proclaimed. He doesn't just need to be scrutinized, but he needs to be heralded. And last, like Paul in Romans 11, we should never get over the wonder of God's mercy and grace that we can't earn and we don't deserve. Let this mystery lead you to worship like it did for Paul in Romans 11. And last and certainly not least, I'm looking around a room and most of you aren't Jews. Most of you aren't Jewish. Maybe you got a little bit in you. Aren't you glad that God extends his family and gives you and I a seat at the table? It's a sovereign choice and a sovereign grace that he purposed beforehand that he was calling a people from every tribe, tongue, and race. And also ought to think, as you think about that, it also ought to make you think about the people groups of this world that are not yet reached. And the people that don't look like you that need to hear the truth of the gospel. Your takeaway is this. God's sovereign plans never fail. They're just bigger and better than you and I can often see. Let me pray. Father, we want to be a people who worship you for all that you are. We rest in your love and your mercy but we also rest in your sovereignty, in your providence that tells us that you're in control of all things. You're working all things to the counsel of your will, all things, good, bad, and different. And we thank you, Lord, that we can rest in this great truth from your word that you are sovereign over everything. You're sovereign over our salvation. You're sovereign over our lives. Help us be a people that will cling to that when we look around and say, is God's word failing? That we would rest in your plans and in your purposes that do not fail. In Jesus' name, amen.